I have to tell you a real quick funny story. Two weeks ago when we, when we took our first uh, run-through of uh, Matthew's genealogy, um, at the Friday night service and at the 8 o'clock service, we have a translation for our deaf ministry. And uh, so two weeks ago, Friday night, Nancy Deckman, who's our normal translator, was translating. And I was completely oblivious to her situation. So I read chapter 1 rather quickly. And she got freaked trying to, and she's really excellent at doing this, like much as Patty is. And, uh, and she just hands went like this with all the names, right? And I'm just going on like nothing. Just. So she calls me two days later. She says, are you my friend or not? <laughs> so, so I said, what are you talking about? And she went on to explain to me that she was just going crazy with trying to keep up with me and trying to figure out how to translate these names using the sign language. And I said, oh, my gosh. So Francie Agajanian was translating Friday night, so I said, okay, I won't do it. And then, Patty, I'm not going to use the names this morning, so you're free. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So I, all that said, I'll leave you to read chapter 1 on your own. I just want to launch right into it. As you recall, if you were here two weeks ago when we began this passage, we saw, first of all, that uh, Matthew's genealogy is written for a number of purposes, one of which, and the most important is, to prove that Jesus is the legal and royal heir to the throne of David. In uh, the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, we read that uh, God had promised King David through the prophet Nathan that when David died, that God would raise up an heir to him from his own body who would succeed him on the throne. That's verse 12. Verse 16 of that very same passage, we discover that David's throne would be an everlasting throne. So that would imply that's one of the early prophecies about a Messiah. There's going to be a ruler, a king, out of David's line who will sit on David's throne forever. So this gives rise to, uh, again, another understanding of the coming of the Messiah. So Matthew's genealogy then would follow the royal line through David and then Solomon, David's son Solomon, who would be his immediate heir to the throne, if you recall. Matthew's genealogy proves then that Jesus is the legal descendant of David. And Matthew follows genealogy all the way down through Joseph's father-in-law, or, uh, Matthew, or uh, Jesus' father-in-law, Joseph. And thereby, he circumvents the curse on Jeconiah. Do you remember we talked about that? That uh, Jeconiah was the last of the kings of Judah prior to the Babylonian captivity. And God, because he was such a wicked king, God pronounced a curse on him that he would have no literal physical descendant sit on the throne. And so uh, you see the, the there's a, circumvention of that curse by uh, Joseph or, uh, Joseph and his father uh, being the avenue through which Jesus would, in fact, legally have claim to the throne. By contrast, Luke's genealogy uh, follows the royal line uh, through Nathan, another son of King David. So you have King David, then you have Solomon, and you have Nathan. Two royal lines. And it was through Solomon's line came the legal right, and it was through Nathan's line 
came the racial uh, claim or the, the blood claim, if you will, to the ancestry uh, and to the throne uh, of David. Uh, Jesus then would be the blood descendant of David through Mary and the legal descendant of David through Joseph. Now, this is significant uh, because in the year A.D. 70, most of you are aware, in the year A.D. 70, the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem really, and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And when they did so, they also destroyed all the genealogical records. Now, if you were a Jewish family, typically you would keep all your ancestral records, and, and this was very, very important. But the official records were kept in the temple. So with the destruction of the city and the homes, and as well, uh, the temple itself, uh, nearly all the genealogical records of the Jews were destroyed. So uh, no genealogies exist now that can trace the ancestry of, of any Jewish person now living. So we have no records. The Jews have no records of their ancestry. And the primary significance of that is that for Jewish people who today are looking for another Messiah other than Jesus, uh, his lineage to David cannot be established because there are no genealogical records. So anyone who comes along and says, I'm the Messiah, believe in me, follow me, you'd have to prove genealogically that he is in fact a descendant of David, according to all the prophecies, who has a legal and royal right to sit on the throne. You see that? Now, Jesus Christ, because of these two records, of the genealogies provided by both Matthew and Luke, Jesus is the very last verifiable claimant to the throne of David and therefore to the messianic line. Isn't that cool? Jesus is the only claimant that you can prove can sit on the throne of David. Now, these genealogies were not written just to satisfy our curiosity. They were not written to uh, give us a reason to boast in his ancestry. Remember, they were written to prove that he is the promised Messiah. They prove it. And, And if you were part of that culture, you depended heavily on your records, on your genealogy. Uh, unlike us, we're a bunch of mongrels, right? We have no genealogies. We're just a mixture of all sorts of things. What are you? I'm German, French, Irish, blah, 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 blah. But, but for the Jews, this was very, very important, their records. The Messiah was to be the offspring of Abraham, and he was to be the offspring of David, according to those genealogies. God gave to Abraham and his offspring... And, and, and the idea of offspring, we would typically understand it as plural, Jews plurally. But the Apostle Paul in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 16, says that, that this promise to Abraham was, it was the promise to him and his seed. And, he, and Paul specifically says this promise was made to the seed of Abraham, singular meaning Jesus the Christ. So Paul gives us clarity into this promise. So he was to be the offspring of Abraham, and through that he was to bring blessings for the whole world. 
This is what we're told in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. God promises the whole world is going to be blessed through you, through your offspring. And Paul says, no, it's through your seed, singular, he's meaning the Messiah. So you get greater and greater clarity. And uh, God gave also to David uh, and his offspring. And his offspring would be, again, the Messiah from the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God gave to David and his offspring the promise of eternal government. And you read other passages, uh, most notably in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about uh, the government will be on his shoulders and it will be a, a government that will last forever. Uh, so those messianic passages are very, very specific. But again, through David. Promises through Abraham, eternal government through David. Now the Jews believed in these promises. They knew the prophecies. And so Matthew now sets out to prove that Jesus, who is called Christ, is indeed the promised offspring of Abraham, and he is the promised offspring of King David. Given that fact, given what what Matthew uh, lists for us in his genealogy, Jesus' claim to be Messiah has to be taken seriously. You can't just dismiss it. A Jew can't just dismiss it. This is something significant if you if you are talking to someone who's Jewish and who takes their faith seriously and they, they have some idea of the Messiah. Uh, it's, there's a, a tremendous apologetic given right here in the genealogy for Jesus' claim to be, in fact, the Messiah. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus uh, also is meant to do a couple of other things. It's meant to awaken faith. And again, this is, falls in the line of, of being apologetic. Awaken the faith in Jews yet who didn't believe as they would read the genealogy, as they would hear about Jesus, they would have to come to the conclusion. They can't just dismiss it. Even as they checked, uh, checked their own historical records, they would see that Jesus had to be, because he does fulfill the requirements genealogically. So that uh, it would hopefully awaken faith in Jews who didn't believe. And secondly, it would strengthen the faith of those Jews who already did put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. Now, this would be particularly important for them because uh, they are, they are uh, scattered abroad. Peter talks to uh, the church in First Peter, uh, the church who is scattered abroad throughout the entire Roman Empire, and the early church was predominantly Jewish to begin with. And so many of these Jews would have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, and many would be undergoing some measure of persecution. So writing this genealogy gives them assurance. He would say to them, in effect, you've not, you've not believed in vain. And God is faithful to keep his promises. And then with that, every single believer uh, in Jesus is in line to receive the promise of God to Abraham and the promise of God to David. All those promises are fulfilled in Christ. The promise of God through Abraham is what? A promise to be a blessing to the whole world. Should we be blessings as Christians, as, as sons and descendants of Abraham? Should we get to participate in the eternal government of God's kingdom? Absolutely, absolutely. So every believer now uh, gets to receive and participate in these great promises to Abraham and to David. Uh, you may, in your own life right now, feel uh, kind of like those early believers, you may feel kind of scattered abroad, you know. Uh, you may feel at odds uh, with 
family members, friends. You may feel alone, may feel misunderstood. Uh, you may feel uh, frustrated, depressed. Maybe you feel like you don't have a purpose in your life. Uh, you may feel like you're simply in a rut. You may feel like uh, you're not going anyplace or that God is far away, unapproachable. You may wonder, uh, you know, why God won't answer and meet your particular need. So there's lots of issues that, that, that we kind of wrestle with and that are human issues. But the truth is the promises of God are true and they are sure. In, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that through our knowledge of him, and as you grow in your knowledge of him, mature in your knowledge of him, you begin to discover that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's already provided everything we need for life and godliness. Isn't that wonderful? Now, you may be at odds. You may, you may feel, feel like you're scattered abroad. You may feel uncertain about life. But when you spend time with God and His Word, you discover, oh, oh, it's just like as we study through this particular genealogy. We learn it's not just a, a, just a list of names. There's much more import, much more purpose to it. We glean much more as we meditate on it and think about it. Wow, all of this, all of this accrues to us. I do have purpose. I do have meaning. God does really love me. I do have a place. I do fit and so forth and so forth. Does that make sense? In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, we read this, and this is what he has promised us. He's promised us even eternal life. Now, I know when we say that, our, our mind just kind of clicks in eternal life. Okay, but that's for later. That's after I die. When does eternal life begin? It begins the moment you receive Christ. It begins the moment you are born again. It begins the very instant when you are transformed. That's when eternal life begins. That's when all these promises kick in, if you will. God is, God is at work in your life. He is at work in your life. You may not feel it, but He is at work in your life, even in spite of you. Isn't that exciting? I'm not going anywhere. Where's God? He's working. Trust me. He's faithful. He's faithful to His promises. In Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 16 and 17. This is marvelous. He says, And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When you are born again, the Holy Spirit convinces you that you are a child of God. It's not like you're back and forth and doubting, wonder, you know, am I saved, am I not saved? No, I know that I am. Why? Because His Spirit testifies with my spirit. Now, most of us understand what it is to have that internal witness. It's an internal witness. Now, you wouldn't know that it's the Holy Spirit unless you read it. Oh, that's what that is. That's the Holy Spirit talking to me. Oh, boy. And it confirms that we are what? Children of God. And he goes on and says this. We are God's children. And now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to sit on an eternal throne. He's inheriting everything. Paul says we are what? Co-heirs with him. <laughs> well, yeah, that's cool. How many have trouble balancing their bank accounts? <laughs> right? You know how that's like? You've got to find that last penny. Drive you crazy until you find that last penny. We're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ. Is that awesome? And then he says this. 
if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It's necessary that we share in his sufferings to prepare us to share in his glory. That's what the Bible tells us. God's not left us alone. You're not adrift. These promises to Abraham, promises to David, come through the Messiah and flow to us. Titus chapter 3, verse 7. So that having been justified by our works, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Right? No? We're not justified by our works? Why do we keep trying to prove ourselves? No, we're justified by His grace. His grace. But I'm not good enough. (laughs) That's right. None of us are good enough. It's grace. We have no real practical everyday concept of what it is to experience grace because we're so busy jumping through everyone's hoops, performing for each other, aren't we? Trying to gain favor. I'm acceptable if I perform. But God says, no, no, no. You're acceptable. And because you're acceptable, now you perform. It's a done deal already. Does that make sense to you? It's grace. Gosh, if we could, if we could just get a hold of that. If we could just believe Him. Matthew's genealogy also is a study in God's mercy and His grace. And it's a particular study uh, with the inclusion of four women and their outcasts in Jesus' genealogy. It is a, not a normal thing in the ancient Near East, in genealogy, in family, family records, it's not normal to include women in these records, much less women with the records of these four women. Who are the four women? Do you remember? Who's the first one? Tamar. Tamar's the first one. Who's the second one? Rahab, who's the third one? Ruth, who's the fourth one? Yeah, she's not even named, but she's, 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 she's identified as Uriah's, Uriah's wife, right? Let's look at these real quickly. Most of us are familiar with them. But you have to appreciate the fact that God deliberately includes these four women who are all Canaanites. They're outcasts. They don't belong in the family. But he includes them. Amazing. Mercy and grace. Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite. Totally illegal to marry an Israelite, but she marries Judah's son anyway. And then Judah's son dies, and according to the Leverite law, that was the law in Israel, that if, if if you were the oldest son and you didn't provide male offspring, then if there was a next-born son, then you were to marry, you were a woman, you were to marry that son, and he was to provide an, a son and offspring for the, your older brother who died. And if you couldn't do it, then they would go down the line to the, if there were a line of sons. So the first two sons die, no, no offspring. Judah promises Tamar, look, when my little son grows up, he'll marry you and provide an offspring for the oldest brother. Well, time goes by, as you might imagine, and Judah doesn't keep his promise. Tamar takes matters into her own hands, and she pretends to be a what? Prostitute. 
and she seduces her father-in-law, Judah, unbeknownst to him, and she gets pregnant, and she has two sons, Perez and Zerah. The whole sordid affair you find played out in Genesis chapter 38. Despite the prostitution, despite the incest, God's grace and mercy was extended to Tamar as well as to Perez, and they joined Judah in the Messianic lineage. May I suggest all three clearly undeserving And yet God extends mercy and grace to them, includes them in the line. It just takes your breath away. The the next outcast is a woman also, a Gentile. She too is guilty of prostitution. But for her, unlike Tamar, this was her profession. Who in the world would want to include a professional prostitute in your your line and, and advertise it? Rahab, inhabitant of Jericho. Here are the Israelites. Jericho is the first city that they're going to conquer when the Israelites enter the promised land. And uh, Joshua says uh, to the Israelites, I'm going to send a couple spies in. They're going to spy out the land, check out the fortifications, etc., etc. And so the two spies go into Jericho. They check the city out. However, the king of Jericho finds out. He wants to kill them because they're afraid of the uh, Israelites. And Rahab, a prostitute, hides these two guys and then lies about their presence so they can escape. She's a prostitute and a liar. She lied to save the lives of those two Israelites. And because her fear of God and her kind act toward God's people, God spared her life and he spared the life also of her entire family when Jericho was destroyed. Again, I think you can see God's mercy and his grace. His mercy and His grace, not only to spare her life, but to bring her also into the Messianic line. And she becomes the ancestor of godly Boaz, who would become David's great-grandfather. Whoa, what a family. The third outcast is Ruth. She was a Moabite. The Moabites are the product of, again, an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. When Lot flees the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, heads up into the mountains, his two daughters now are, are, are Sam's husbands. They have no offspring. They have no hope, no future. So they concoct a little plot. Let's get our father Lot drunk and we'll sleep with him. And he'll give us offspring. I don't know about you, but that, that's not cool. <laughs> that is, I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I read that and went, ooh, yuck. So she, uh, the Moabites now are the product of this ancestral relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. The Moabites were among the most vicious and the most merciless of Israel's enemies. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 23, verse 3, uh, Moses says that to the 10th generation, a Moabite was not to be admitted to the congregation. They were so uh, egregious in the mind of God that they were to the 10th generation, 
no one was to get in to the congregation, become affiliated with the Israelites. Though Ruth was a Moabite, though she was a pagan, with no right at all to marry an Israelite in the first place, God extended grace and mercy to her. He brought not only Ruth into the family of Israel, but later through Boaz into, again, the royal line. And she became the grandmother now of King David. Wow. And we now come to the fourth woman, Bathsheba. Now, she's not identified in the genealogy by name, but she is mentioned simply as Uriah's wife. David. <sighs> Idle time, the devil's workshop. David's meandering one evening on this palace roof, checking out the city, sees a woman bathing, starts lusting after her. Eventually commits adultery with her. Hatches a cover-up plot to cover up the whole thing. Her husband, Uriah, he has him murdered. And then David took Bathsheba as his own wife. Again, by God's mercy and grace, Bathsheba would become the mother of Solomon, David's immediate successor and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. There are no barriers to God's mercy and grace. No barriers. How could God possibly forgive me? Do you, you have no idea what I've done. You know, I'm not worthy. None of us are worthy, as evidenced by these testimonies. No barriers to God's mercy and grace. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. No matter the sex, no matter the nationality, no matter the sin. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. He hung out with sinners. He says himself, he says that he did not come to call the righteous, he came to call sinners. He came to call us. If he has called sinners by grace to be his ancestors, should we be surprised when he calls sinners by grace to be his descendants? Think about that. We come to the table. We are so grateful. So grateful that he's called us. So grateful that he's awakened us. That he saved us. Unworthy as we are. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, and I encourage you to do that. Read Ephesians chapter 2 in the wake of our time this morning. And you'll see how bad we were. Paul says that we are by nature objects of wrath. God's wrath. By nature. It's the fact that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. He says, but God who is rich in mercy extended his grace to us. He says, we have been saved by grace through faith, not of works that any man should boast. Then as you travel down through chapter 2, he talks to us about what, what he has done. He's not only saved us, but he saved us to make us into a brand new race of people. We're no longer hyphenated people, you know what I mean? Hyphenated Americans, hyphenated Christians. We're, we're Christians. We're a brand new race of people. 
We are born again. The old distinctions have passed away. New things have come. We must embrace that. It's part of the great heritage that he has designed for us through the promises of Abraham and to David. New creation. The lineage from David through Solomon resulting in the birth of Jesus that royal pedigree, the striking characteristic of that dynasty, when you read through the list of kings, is fascinating also in that you see this dynasty is the alternating series of godly kings and wicked kings who sat on the throne of David. The genealogy of Jesus demonstrates also that God's grace is not something that's inherited in a family line. Rather, it is something that is given as God wills. You see, there are both good kings and bad kings in the ancestry of Jesus. And just because a king was good did not mean that his goodness then was inherited by his his offspring, his descendant, the next king to sit on the throne. There is, in other words, no pattern, if you will, no pattern of righteousness in the lineage of Jesus. Adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles are all found in that genealogical listing from Abraham down through David. And then from David to the Babylonian captivity, we see that wicked kings fathered good kings and good kings fathered wicked kings. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, who was a wicked king, and he fathered the wicked Abijah, who fathered the good kings Asa and through him Jehoshaphat. No rhyme, no apparent reason. It's just, God, how does this do? How does this work? The offspring of Asa and Jehoshaphat was the wicked king Joram. The alternating sequence of good and evil kings continues through Josiah. And Josiah fathered the wicked king Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim. And Jeconiah was the king that was cursed By God, he was the last ruler of Judah prior to the Babylonian captivity. He was indeed a wicked king. Godliness and righteousness are not inherited. They're not inherited. Not a single king was able to pass on his nature down to the next king. Every human being, every human being stands as an individual before God and is responsible to God for his or her own life and behavior. You and I may have had godly parents, may have grown up in a godly family, but godliness is not inherited through natural descent. A person has to confront Jesus Christ for himself or herself. You're going to stand there all by yourself. You can't say, well, yeah, but my, 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 you know. You stand there yourself. We can certainly influence our children by our lives. Lives that are genuine, faith-filled lives. And our kids watch us, and they watch us truly live by faith. That can influence them. When they watch our lives being truly prayer-filled lives, they watch as, as, as parents pray and come before the Lord. They watch as parents exhibit 
a truly a true God-given love for each other and a love for the church and a love for the kingdom of God. Children grow up in an environment and they watch spirit-filled parents. They watch. They learn these things. But they must, they must receive Jesus Christ themselves. And we certainly ought to be positive influences, shouldn't we? But it's no guarantee, is it? It's no guarantee. Every person must come to Christ, him or herself. John told us that, if you recall back in his prologue of his gospel, he said to us in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he said, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You have to believe yourself. You have to come yourself. You have to step up to the bar and say, okay, I believe. I believe, notwithstanding what my parents did or didn't do. I believe. I make this decision. I make this choice. It's mine. To all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Matthew's genealogy also emphasizes something else, and that is the power, power of God to keep his promises. God keeps his promises. He is not puny. He is not weak. You identify the promises of God, he keeps his promises to us. And God's power here is seen in his delivering of his people through terrible times, particularly for the Jews in the exile to Babylon. The Babylonian exile is prominent in Jesus' genealogy. Look at verses 11 and 12, verse 17. That exile is prominent in Jesus' genealogy. The question is, why is it so prominent? Why does he mention the Babylonian exile? Because he wants to stress a great point. And that is this, only God could save his people through so great a trial. He's made a promise. What's his promise? His promise wasn't to save them. His promise was to produce the Messiah. And if he didn't save his people, there would be no Messiah. Does that make sense? Now, the Babylonians were exceedingly cruel people. If you were with us during our study of the book of Daniel, uh, you can remember something of, of, the, of the characteristics of Nebuchadnezzar and the succeeding kings. They were, they were a cruel people. They took the people of nations they had conquered, and they would scatter them throughout the entire Babylonian empire. And it was, it was that, by that means that they literally destroyed the conquered peoples uh, who, who they had overcome. And you see, what would happen is they would take you and, and, and they would take all you Polynesians <laughs> and they would put you in different places. And pretty soon, you, you would become integrated in, in, in these other cultures and these other people groups. And you'd, you'd lose your foods and your memory of your land and, and all that sort of thing because you're separated now and you have to integrate. And that, was, that would be how they would actually literally obliterate and destroy people groups, nations. They would disseminate them. Not so, however, with the Jews. Matthew is saying that God preserved the Jews. This is why he talks about the Babylonian exile. He preserved the Jews through the impossible. 
And the impossible was this attempt to obliterate them as a people group, obliterate them as a nation. Isn't it interesting? The Jews are still with us. I mean, through every single attempt since their very inception as a people, there has been nation after nation after nation, people group after people who have tried to destroy them, and they are still with us. What do you think? Is God, is God true to his promises? Absolutely. God preserved the Jews through the Babylonian captivity in order to keep his promise to send the Messiah. You and I as believers, we can rest assured in God's promises and we can rest assured in his power. For he will fulfill his promises. How many, have, how many have, have felt threatened by the world? How many feel like the, the world is just overwhelming? In a, in a very many ways it is, isn't it? And the world, however, the Bible says the world can be overcome, huh? The world can, can affect our life so that we become discouraged. So that we become depressed. And some people actually... Uh, get despairing and, and feel lonely and frustrated. But there is assured victory in God's promises. Now, if you don't believe me, you can read ahead to the last book. Here's one of his promises. Here's where, here's where people feel, feel overwhelmed. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. How many know this verse? One of you. Okay. Two of you. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. What a marvelous promise. Listen to this. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, you're not unique. And God is what? Faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it kind of rips away all of our excuses, doesn't it? Well, I just couldn't help myself. Yes, you could. God provide. He says, I provide a way out. You don't have to give in. You don't have to succumb. You don't have to be overcome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, I love this. For our light and momentary troubles. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm experiencing a light and momentary trouble. <laughs> Do we respond that way? Oh, no. Let me tell you the trouble I've got. You don't know the grief I'm seeing. Oh, you know, just, I'm almost sorry I asked. No, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What a promise. What a promise. I have assurance God's power can take the struggles and trials and difficulties I'm going through and he creates great glory for me to embrace later. Trust him. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone born of God... Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Everyone? Yes. Me? Yes, you, even you. 
This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. How do you overcome the world? How do you overcome the pressure of the world? By faith in God and His Word and His promises. That's why it's important to read your Bible. So you know what it says. (laughs) Who is it that overcomes the world? Here it comes. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Only Christians. Only Christians. The world is going to swallow everybody else up. Is the world swallowing everybody else up? Just Just as the Lord preserved Israel, He preserves you and I. Just as Babylon could not swallow up the Jews, the world will not swallow us up. Our faith is in a God who is faithful to us and faithful to His promises and exhibits His power to save us out of it. Lastly, Matthew's genealogy pictures the three periods of Israel's spiritual history. I mentioned to you, in in fact, Matthew says that that this genealogy is broken into three three sections, 14 generations each. It it helped facilitate memorizing. For the Jews, they all memorize their genealogies. So it helped them to memorize it. Okay, who's the first 14, the second 14, third 14? You know, like we do that, you know, how do I figure out how to memorize these things? And so, uh, so this genealogy pictures the three periods of Israel's spiritual history. The first period is seen uh, starting with Abraham and the giving birth to Israel through Abraham, through David, giving dominion to Israel through David. So that's the, that's the first 14 generations. Abraham to David. Israel's given birth and given dominion. The second uh, generation, the second section, the second period pictures Israel losing its dominion and being enslaved as a result of God's judgment upon their sin and rebellion. And so we see Israel now falling. We see Israel into captivity, disciplined by God. But again, he's faithful to rescue them. And that leads us to the third period. And the third period symbolizes Israel's ultimate triumph through the Messiah and through the Messiah's liberating power. So God rescues and sets Israel in a high place. You read the prophet Isaiah and you see clearly that is in store. Those three hysterical... 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 That, that, that... Those three historical periods can also symbolize the spiritual pilgrimage of any saved person. Now, follow the logic of this. This is beautiful. The first period, we see man created, and man is created, and he is purposed to rule over God's creation. Just as uh, as, as uh, Israel was born, they were created to have dominion, created to have rule. We were created to have rule. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, God says, let us make man in our image and let them rule over the created order. We were meant to rule. We were meant to be God's vice regents here over creation. Psalm 8, verse 6 tells us this. The psalmist says, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. At a lower level, that's an interpret that speaking about man. But at the higher level, that really is a prophetic uh, word about the Messiah. It's a messianic prophecy also. The second period, you see, though man is created to rule, the second period 
would represent man losing his right of dominion. And he becomes enslaved to sin and ultimately the judgment of God. God says the day you eat of that fruit is the day you what? Die. The wage of sin is death. And so man, he loses dominion. He loses this. Just like Israel, because of their, of their sin and rebellion, willfully so. Genesis chapter 3 pictures what we call the fall of man. Man was created in an exalted state of perfection. And because of his own choice, he fell from that state of perfection to a state of imperfection and come under God's wrath. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. How did sin get into the world? Through what? Who's the man? Adam. And when sin came into the world, it brought its buddy death with it. People say, why why is there death? Because sin entered the world. How did it enter the world? Through a man, Adam. And death came with it. And then he goes on and says, and in this way, death came to all men. Now notice this is last phrase. Because all what? All sin. There's a principle called corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity means that, that you're part of a greater a greater environment. When Adam sinned, when he disobeyed God, he was the human race. True? So therefore, when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned. Do you follow that logic? So that's when Paul says, so all sinned. Now, I've heard people say, well, I've inherited Adam's sin nature. No, 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 no. You sinned. You're not an innocent victim. You're just not a helpless victim. You sin. That's what he says. Because all sin. How did I sin? You are part of the human race. When Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned. You sinned. You're just as culpable. That's why you're guilty. That's why God can't just wink and say, well, you know, it wasn't your fault. You weren't there. You didn't do it. No, no. We did it. We're guilty. Third, you see that man now can be liberated and restored. Liberated and restored to fulfill his original purpose through Jesus Christ the Messiah. John 3.16 God so loved us that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He tells us in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 5 verses 8 through 10. Let me read this to you. He says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, we couldn't do anything to help ourselves. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's God's purpose, that third section 
of the genealogy refers not only to Israel's restoration, but it refers and pictures our restoration through Jesus, our liberation from sin. As you study Matthew chapter 1, as you study this genealogy on your own, and I encourage you to do so, may you see that it's far more than simply just a list of names. It has, as I mentioned earlier, it has a tremendous contemporary significance for apologetics. It gives us an apologetic for Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Unarguably so. But not only that, it points us to our new pedigree. We have a brand new pedigree. Our roots go back to Abraham. Abraham is our father also. And we are new creations. We are united together as believers in a brand new race, heretofore unknown on the face of the earth. We are Christians. We are Christians. And thirdly, we realize that Christianity, Christianity is not just wishful thinking. Christianity is not the result of some emotional subjectivity. It's not the result of historical speculation. When you study the genealogy, you see that Christianity is embedded in the facts of history. We have a historical basis for what we believe. No other faith can do this. No other belief system, no other philosophy can prove that it is the truth. Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. He truly is the only way to the Father. Aren't you glad that He's opened your eyes and saved you? Amen? God, thank You for opening our eyes. Thank You for working a great salvation for us. Thank You for this genealogy. Thank You for, Lord, just the the marvelous reality of Your Word. Lord, I pray for anybody this morning that's sitting in this room, sitting in this congregation, who doesn't know you, who is not a Christian, or sitting on the fence. Young person, old person, in-between person. I pray, God, that you would, by your Spirit, speak into the life in their heart and challenge them to read for themselves, to study for themselves, and to realize that eternity hangs in the balance that you are the most important person and that coming to you is the most important decision they'll ever make. Lord, I pray that if anybody's lethargic about their faith, that you would shake them and wake them up. I pray that you'd strengthen them. I pray and ask God that you would lead them in the way they should go. Have mercy on them. Have mercy on us all, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen, church.